Good morning again. So we are continuing in Philippians chapter 3, the first half. And, uh, oh, I didn't get anyone to do the reading. I'll do the reading in a minute. This is the reading. I do have about half a brain cell left. Right, so this is the reading, chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Finally, finally, verse 1 of chapter 3, when there's two whole lengthy chapters still to go. But Paul says, finally, he is uh, super optimistic. And in some version it now says further, which makes him look less foolish, I feel. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. And he's just been speaking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and uh, a bunch of people. And it doesn't seem like the most logical next sentence from what he's been saying before. And I think really we need to turn back to chapter 2 and verse 18, where he says, So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And because you'll have read Paul before, you know he occasionally goes off on these little tangents where he suddenly thinks of something and then does a whole little tangent around that. And then he's quite good at continuing. We find that more difficult with our chapters and verses. So I think he does that. He's thinking about joy, which is a theme through Philippians anyway. He goes off on this bit of a tangent, but then he comes back to that same thought. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. And there's this continual reminder in Philippians and actually other places in Paul that we need to find our joy in Jesus through suffering, which Paul experienced in great amounts, through under persecution, in prison, rejoice in Jesus. Now, many of us, when we are told what to do, instinctively go, "Hmm, I don't want to do that then. So one of the ways that we can understand this command that Paul gives to the church is let the Lord, that's another way of understanding the Greek, let the Lord be the one who makes you happy. And somehow that doesn't feel so confrontational, does it? And perhaps we get a deeper understanding there of what we're talking about, that it's the Lord who gives us joy, the Lord in whom we rejoice. It's not some kind of masochistic thing 
that in all circumstances we should just be happy because we're not always happy. Not all circumstances make us feel happy. I'm sure Paul didn't feel happy all the time, but he found that in the Lord, in Jesus, he could find that joy in every circumstance he could sing in all the different circumstances of his life. The challenge for us is to find our joy in Christ alone. We will find happiness, joy will come via other things, people, circumstances, a nice sunny day, etc. But we need to find our joy in him. And then he changes theme again. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard to you. And we need to understand here that Paul's initial focus is as a pastor or a church leader. He is the founder of this church in Philippi that he's writing to. And so it's in his heart. He carries this church in his heart. And it seems that he's heard something about what's going on there. And so that pastor's heart comes back into play again. And so his initial focus is his responsibility for safeguarding the church community. That is part of our responsibility, is the safeguarding of the church community. Just like the shepherd in the east used to lay himself down across the hole, you know, the gate, where the sheep went into the fold to protect them, that also is the role of a pastor, is to safeguard and protect the people of God. So Paul has heard that something's going on in the church that he is not happy with, that is compromising the gospel, and his role there is to safeguard the church. And he uses really strong language, doesn't he? Watch out for those dogs. Okay, he's not talking your favorite pet puppy. He's talking about wild dogs that roam the streets fighting and scavenging in packs. Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. It's quite strong, isn't it, for a sunny Sunday morning? You see, it seems that some Jewish legalists had infiltrated the church and they were insisting on circumcision as a prerequisite for salvation. They were saying, you can't really know Jesus if you haven't also been circumcised. Now, some of you will know that Paul had Timothy circumcised, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 16 and verse 3. So is Paul contradicting himself here? Is he saying, well, it's okay for me to do it, but it's not okay for you to do it? See, the story there is that Paul got Timothy circumcised so that he would be socially acceptable in the context in which they were doing mission. So, so that they would be able to listen to Timothy Paul knew that it was important for Timothy to be circumcised so that he fitted in. Anne Keane was here at the 915, and she's just been out in India uh, being involved there in some missional work. And I said to her, I'm assuming that you wore a scarf around your head and uh, that you covered up appropriately, uh, unlike probably most of the people on the streets of Skipton today. And she went, yes, of course I did. Well, it wasn't that it wasn't really hot. It was really hot. And if she'd been here, she may have dressed a little bit differently. But in order for the gospel to be communicated, in order for her to fit in socially, she wore a scarf and was appropriate. That was the same reason that Paul had Timothy circumcised. Circumcision was a mark 
of inclusion in the covenant. But Paul is saying that is no longer necessary for inclusion in the covenant because we can know Jesus and be part of the relationship with him by the Spirit. So if you rattle a few pages back to Romans chapter 2 and verse 29. It says, No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by a written code. You know, it's a different kind of entrance requirement into the covenant now. It's by the Spirit because of the death of Jesus on the cross. Our confidence is in Jesus alone. And thankfully, circumcision is no longer required. (laughs) You know, one of the key ways in which Satan, our enemy, seeks to destroy the church is by deception. There's many ways in which he seeks to wipe out the church of Christ, but one of those is deception. You could understand deception as a line of behavior that people believe is God-honoring, but denies the gospel. So it's something that people believe honors God, but actually denies the sufficiency of the gospel that is just because of Jesus. It's the story of church history, isn't it? It's our tendency to want to add on things to the simple gospel, salvation by grace. So it started as circumcision and including all sorts of legalistic practices. Well, that still happens in some places. Then in Colossians, he talks about everyone having a special knowledge, a special wisdom, and that continues as a strand throughout early church history. The only people that have this special insight and wisdom can really being followers of Jesus. Perhaps it's around spiritual gifts. Only if you speak in tongues are you properly saved. And if you don't, well, best case scenario, a second-class Christian or not one at all, we add on. Maybe it's additional prophets. You know, most of the what we understand as cults are also known as Christian deviations. They have kind of what we have and then, and then something, and then another prophet, and then another set of scriptures. They add on. For many uh, centuries in the Catholic Church, it was around indulgences. You bought your way to heaven or the veneration of saints or Mary. Perhaps it's thoughts around the humanity and deity of Jesus. In recent times, maybe it's been a particular view on the prosperity gospel, that if you're not healthy and you're not wealthy, then you're truly not a Christian. And we add on things. And it's a challenge to us because these are our blind spots We do not even necessarily realize that that's what we've done. What should you wear? How much percentage should you give? How should you you work or behave? What are our add-ons to the simple gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we want people to conform before we truly accept that they're a Christian? What behavior would we expect? What kind of things do we hold as sacred, even in this building, in our style, that somehow we're adding on to the simple gospel of Jesus? What obstacles or barriers do we put in front of people to make it more difficult for them to know Jesus? When I was on the Open Doors retreat a couple of um, weeks ago now, they told the story about a Chinese pastor Uh, Prepared to be impressed, by the way. Um, This Chinese pastor was pastor of three million people. 
We've got a little way to go. And we definitely won't know your names if there's three million of you. <laughs> three million people. He clearly was doing something right, or, or God was, one of the two, or both. But his doctrine was this. You cannot be a Christian if you do not go into your room and weep and pray for three days. Now, I imagine that was his experience, that his encounter with Jesus had been so profound in his context in China, where they know a whole lot about prayer and weeping and intercession and commitment to Jesus. So please don't hear anything other than that. His experience was that experience. And he taught people around him, and then more people, and more people, and probably even before anyone had realized, the message was, unless you do this, you are not a Christian. Now, there is so much challenging about that, isn't there, in terms of our own commitment to Christ, and prayer, and the emotional content of that. But it does not make you a Christian because you weep and pray in your room for three days. The cross of Christ and trusting in that makes you a Christian. And so, as Reverend Burns likes to say, mind yourself. You know, be alert. We need to be aware of the times that we might inadvertently do that. And I want to go back just really briefly to verse 13 of chapter 2, because it gives the right understanding of this. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We need to live in the light of eternity. One day, we're going to meet Jesus face to face, and he may have some things to say about our lives. But we work out our salvation. We do not work for our salvation, and that is the key difference. We live it out. We don't work for it. So Paul goes on in verse 3 and 4 to say, I, have no comf I put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul's logical, systematic, maybe even accounting brain comes to the fore. And he looks back to that day when he encountered Jesus face to face and the whole system of his personal spiritual accountancy broke down. Everything he had thought was gain was, in fact, in the loss column. I hope David's not going to find that. <laughs> I'm trusting that he won't. Paul stacks up his profits. All of those things that he has so counted on. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day exactly as I was meant to be, the outward mark of the covenant. He says, I am an is of the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin. This is grounds of security before God. Benjamin was the only son born in the land of promise. He gave Israel their first king, whose name was Saul, which of course was Paul's name before he became Paul. <laughs> it was a position of honor to be of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had pure racial uh, lineage. He was a Pharisee and a really excellent one at that. He was right at the top of his game. 
He said, uh, as to legalistic righteousness, what's the word he uses? Faultless. I mean, not even like 97%. Faultless, 100%. This is somebody who lived by the law, every small little bit of it. And he says of himself, I was faultless. As to zeal, persecuting the church. Someone who was so committed to God, to this monotheistic, pure religion, that when anything came against it, he was out to destroy it, which included the Christian church. This is Paul. This is all his reasons to have confidence. But then he looks at it through the eyes of a person who has encountered the living Jesus. And he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All those things stacked up, so weighty, so important, of such great value in his previous life, in the face of Jesus, were nothing compared to Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't focus on this conversion story. He focuses on knowing Jesus. That'll be the Tour de Yorkshire helicopters coming over, just in case anyone's worrying. Where does our confidence really lie? Where does our confidence really lie? What are your gold stars that you're putting as a magnet on your fridge? (laughs) Where's your confidence? Is it in your upbringing? Is it you've come from a Christian family? Is it that your dad was a minister and your granddad was a minister and your great-granddad was a minister? back to the beginning of time? Is it your financial position that you've looked after your resources well and you've got a good income and lots of money in the bank? Is it around your career status? Is that where our confidence really lies in the job that we do or the position that we've gained or our own sense of achievement? Is it in our Bible knowledge? I grew up in the days of sword drill. And as you will know, I am super competitive and there were prizes. That's where I learned all my Bible verses, because someone offered me a prize at the end. It's true for filthy. (laughs) Is it because of that? Is it because we know it? Not that it's bad to know it. It isn't. It's good to know it. But is our confidence in that? Is it that we have lived a moral life, that we somehow want to stand on a pedestal and look at others around us and say, I'm better than. I didn't do that. I never went down that alley. I'm a moral person. I'm a good person is the words that are used by many, isn't it? Actually, I'm a good person. Is our confidence in that? Is it in the grades that we've got? Or may I say this sensitively, sensitively as you can with helicopters flying over the top, Do we hold our confidence in the wounds of our lives? In the things that have been tough and challenging, the things that are worse than everybody else? Well, Jesus will have me because my life's been awful. So I deserve more because of that. Sometimes I think we find our confidence even in the negative experiences of our lives, not just the positives one. What is your profit column? What are your gold stars? Paul says in verse 8, I have lost all things. All things. Everything that I had my confidence in, I've lost all of those things 
I consider them rubbish. Well, rubbish is a really tame word, isn't it? Even garbage or even trash. You know what Paul's saying there is I consider them to be like the contents of the sewers. I consider all these things that I have put so much credit by to be like the contents of the sewers compared to knowing Jesus. I think the truth for many of us is we hold on to both. We don't put all our trust in those things, but nor do we put all our trust in Jesus. We are not as brave as Paul to say all this stuff is like the contents of sewers in a slum compared to knowing Christ. Because actually we don't give them up that easily, do we? So that means we kind of have a lot of trust in them. Paul said all of that is loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. He's so clear, isn't he, about the main thing? It reminded me of when you take a photograph When you look around you and you choose, don't you, what to put in the photograph and you choose what not to put in the photograph. So so you try and make sure all the electricity wires are not in the photograph. You try and make the pylon not in the photograph and and that kind of ugly house there that you really wish wasn't there. You you try not to make that in the photograph and you, you spend a lot of time framing the photograph, working out what you are going to focus in on and what message you're going to give by your photograph to anyone else who looks at it. Because the other people only see what you chose to take, don't they? They don't know that there was an electricity wire or a pylon or whatever. You edit some bits and you zoom out on others. Paul's entire focus was knowing Jesus Christ. Apparently, we've just done a series on that, by the way, if you're interested. His entire focus was on knowing Jesus. And so when people saw Paul's photographs, they saw photographs of Jesus. Because it was the most important thing to him, knowing Jesus. What, what's our focus? What are we editing out? You know, what are we prepared to not focus on in order to focus on the main thing? What choices will we make? Because however great your photo is, it can't have everything in it. So what are you prepared to edit out so that you might know Jesus better? And what are you zooming in on so that you might know Jesus better? He says he's growing in knowledge. You know, that's a continual challenge, isn't it? Not just head knowledge, although that's not a bad thing, but knowledge in our hearts of knowing Jesus. I've been a Christian a really long time. Longer than some of you have been alive, probably. (laughs) Do I still, am I still growing in my knowledge of Jesus? Or am I 10 years ago? Or 20 years ago? Are you? Jesus Christ, the anointed Son of God, the Messiah, our Savior. And Paul's lost all things, some of it voluntarily, some of it forcibly. He lost the skin off his back. He lost many nights' sleep. He lost the security of traveling in a ship that didn't sink. He lost his freedom for many years in prison. What have we lost? 
What are we prepared to surrender for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus? And then he says in verse 9, to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. It's going back really to verses 2 and 3, isn't he, about the circumcision of the Spirit of God, that joining in the covenant by the Spirit of God. He talks about a righteousness that doesn't come from the law. This is the guy who followed the law to the nth degree. Even then, there is not a righteousness that comes from the law. Righteousness comes by grace. Righteousness is of faith and not of works. If we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, And verse 21, it says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you draw an X shape and you put the things on the opposite sides, he put our sin onto Jesus, all our guilt, all our shame, all our wrongdoing, all our bad attitudes, everything. He put that on Jesus. He took the righteousness that was only Jesus's because he did live the law fully, He was righteous. He was perfect, the Son of God. And he took that righteousness and he puts it in us. It's really, really simple. It's just a transaction. The righteousness that comes to us is by faith. And if we're not sure what faith still means, because it is one of those odd words, isn't it? Missionary went to a different culture where they didn't have the word faith in the culture. And he was trying to understand, how do I write this down when this this word does not exist? And he listened to someone and they said... Is it okay if I lean heavily upon you? He went, that's it. You know, are we leaning heavily upon Christ? Is, are we putting our whole trust into him? Are we leaning so much on him that if he was to fall over, we'd fall over? Because that's what faith looks like. Are we putting our trust in him for our salvation? And then finally, he goes on to this amazing verse. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection power to share in that and the fellowship of his sufferings. I wonder if anyone has had the same thought that I've often had about this verse, which is why is it that way around? Why is it the resurrection power bit first, and then the sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings Second, because all the other verses say that we need to take up our cross and follow him, and then we get the life. You know, you you lose first, and then you gain. You you lay yourself down first, and then God's power comes back to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why has he done it this way round? I have spent many years worrying about this. Why has he put the power first and the sharing and the sufferings Second, that doesn't sound like Paul and his experience. Why has he done that? Paul doesn't do things accidentally. So why has he done that? You know, the resurrection power of Christ is that overcoming power, isn't it? The power that overcame death and gave life, eternal life. It's a power filled with hope because it defeated death and sin and hell. The resurrection power of Christ is that end view power that says that 
Jesus is alive. He is alive, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, that he is there eternally, and that one day we will meet him and see him face to face. That's the resurrection power of God. The resurrection power of God raises a man who's been dead for three days and locked in a tomb with a humongous stone and gets him coming out, speaking to people, going into rooms, revealing himself, people being transformed, the whole world being transformed because of the resurrection power of God. It's good that, isn't it? That's the resurrection power of God. I want to know that power. Do you? That overcoming, life-giving power, world-transforming power of God. It is that power that sustains us as we share in the fellowship of his suffering. It is that power that sustains us. It is that power that sustained Heiwu in North Korean labor camp over many years, being beaten and tortured and raped. It is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that sustains us through periods of intense illness and struggle, whether or not healing comes or not, because one day we know there will be healing and life in the presence of God. It's the resurrection power of Christ that holds us through periods of depression and darkness, because somewhere in there, Christ is with us in it. We need to know his resurrection power. And then when we share in the fellowship of his suffering, there is that amazing truth that what we are enduring, Christ has already endured. That what we are experiencing, he has already experienced. And if it's a privilege to share in that, but it's something so comforting and encouraging to know that he has endured it too. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming somehow like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. When he says somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead, he's not feeling anxious about it, worried that it might not occur. He just doesn't know how it's going to happen. Last time I looked, I didn't know how it was going to happen either. But he knows that this is the end point. It's just not knowing Jesus now, but that we will know him face to face forever. It's that eternal perspective that what we might glimpse of his resurrection power now we will know fully one day for eternity in heaven with Jesus do you know him do I do I know him more am I experiencing that power in my life of his resurrection and also walking gently and patiently when we are in the place of suffering, of sharing the fellowship of his sufferings. 
Sometimes those two go very closely together. Sometimes they feel really quite separate. But in them both do we know Jesus more and more and more.